Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Jack Lloyd and Dave DeCamp. We're going to discuss some foreign policy. Um, They agree on many topics, many issues, I believe, but I I do believe there's a few uh, key points they do disagree on, and so it makes for, of course, a very fascinating discussion. I want to thank both Jack and Dave for coming on and being very respectful and having a what I thought was a, a very good conversation. If you're a fan of the Kelly Patrick Show, I ask that you please send some referrals the way of my sponsors. The title sponsor of the show is Louisville Combat Academy, located at 7908 Beulah Church Road, Louisville, Kentucky, 40228. They have a great MMA program, but also, even if you aren't planning on fighting in the cage, they have a great jiu-jitsu program for adults, female-friendly classes, and a great kids program also. Check out Louisville Combat Academy. Heidi Solars Coots. Heidi is a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor, specializing in treating anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction with a mindful and holistic approach. Heidi is actually my mother, and I can attest she is a saint. Call her at 502-457-1823. Virtual and telephonic appointments are available anywhere in the United States. Veercast Digital Media. Veercast Digital Media at veercast.com. Matt McCarthy runs Veercast, and he is also the producer for The Kelly Patrick Show. They do video production, aerial drone photography, web design, and podcast production. Contact them at info at veercast.com to start your own video show or podcast. Also, my health insurance practice, Benefits Analysis Corporation. Based in Troy, Ohio, I work from my Louisville, Kentucky office. I can help anyone in the United States with their health insurance needs. I'm an independent broker for health insurance solutions for individuals, families, Medicare-eligible individuals, and also groups. I can also write life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals. 502-386-0978. Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am very excited to be joined by two previous guests I've had on the show. As many of you who follow the Kelly Patrick Show know, I identify as a Kind of a, my description would be right-leaning, anarcho-libertarian, anti-war type guy. Uh, uh, take pride in not really supporting Republican or Democrat uh, presidential or, or congressional candidates, really things like that. Um, two of my favorite guests that I've had on recently related to this type of a talk are on the line with us, and I'm going to have each of them take turns doing a, a brief, uh, uh, abbreviated intro. Um, I guess for starters, uh, Dave, Dave of antiwar.com, Dave DeCamp. Dave, how are you today? I'm good, Kelly. Thanks for having me back on. I appreciate it. What is your title with antiwar.com? Yeah, I'm the news editor. Basically, what I do is write kind of short news stories every day um, covering U.S. foreign policy from our anti-war, non-interventionist point of view. Okay, great stuff. And we also on the line with us, we have Jack Lloyd. Jack, if it's all right, uh, if you could do a brief summary of your your work that you do. 
Sure. So I do a lot of things these days. I'm a producer for Liberty, which means I do everything I can uh, to help educate people on the ethics and principles of Liberty. I have three nonfiction books um, as relates to those topics, The Definitive Guide to Libertarian Voluntarism, A Vision for a Libertarian Future, and Philosophical Voluntarism, my latest work. I also produce a comic book series. I help people get into unschooling with The Honest Teacher. I produce The Philosopher, making everything from uh, memes to educational videos, music and music videos. And before this, in a previous life, I was a criminal defense attorney, especially with juveniles. I've worked as a state school teacher and tutoring company owner. And so I bring a lot of that background um, from my work with young people and, of course, you know, in a government setting to help people understand uh, just how bad the government is. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's kind of a quick summary of what I do. Before we jump into our conversation, actually, I'm 40 years old. How old are you guys? Uh, I'm 33. Without giving too much information, I'm uh, in my 30s. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> so you guys are, we're all somewhat similar uh, age-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Well, me being relatively new to this world, I try to consume as much information as I can, learn about, of course, uh, Ukraine and Russia a little bit when I can, a little bit about Israel and Palestine when I can, try to uh, see it through the, the lens of understanding maybe, hopefully in theory, both sides of, of the, 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 um, you know, the conflicts, understand both sides of it and maybe have my own opinion in theory. So I'm trying to learn about it. Uh, uh, Jack, you have been on the show in the past. Dave, you've been on the show in the past. Anytime I have someone on and then they get onto a big, relatively big platform, of course, I try to follow them and see, you know, what I can learn from it. Um, Dave, you did make it onto the um, Tim Pool. Is that, he has a few different podcasts. What was the name of the podcast you're on, Dave? Yeah, I was on, I think it's Timcast IRL. It's like kind of the main one um, that, that he does every day. It's like a couple hours long and usually has different guests. And Yeah, so I was on there. Uh, and that was, uh, it's a pretty big platform. I didn't think I would do too great on there because I'm kind of a single issue guy. You know, I really just focus on foreign policy. And I know that show, they talk about all sorts of stuff. Some stuff that I don't even really have strong opinions on or just haven't really fleshed it out enough that I feel comfortable, you know, talking about it with so many people. So I tried to kind of steer the conversation about foreign policy. And then, of course, uh, we did like get into it a little bit about Israel and Palestine just because it was a few weeks, you know, after things really popped off. Um, So, but yeah, it was cool going on there. It was a good experience. And um, the big thing, and I know uh, this is something we should talk about today was one thing that the conversation always gets steered kind of in the direction of like the protesters in the U.S., like the progressives and, and, the, and the slogans from the river to the sea. And I know like there was a clip of me going around on Twitter defending that slogan. So I'd like to we could talk about that kind of to give it more context um, because, you know, it's just unfortunate because the conversation, even though I want to talk about it, <laughs> the conversation becomes like about that more than like what Israel's doing with our tax dollars because you know the u.s is entirely funding this war that's happening in gaza and this mass slaughter that's happening and you know it's just a good way to kind of distract from that is to focus on the more uh the protesters and and all that stuff that's happening that makes sense and 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 what i was intro attempting to do an introduction to was this episode i heard dave i thought you did a good job on the show 
Tim Cast IRL and Jack, someone who I've really appreciated learning from recently. Also, I saw there was some form of an interaction. Jack, I don't know. Was it on on Twitter? Maybe where you had tweeted at uh, uh, Dave, or somehow you mentioned that you did not agree with Dave's depiction of the slogan from the river to the sea. And you kind of took a little bit of an issue with that. So for those of you tuning in, these are two uh, anarcho uh, uh, guests I'm having on, not big fans of big government on either side. But I would say today's conversation is a little bit of a, hopefully, uh, more of a a, a nuanced discussion uh, of this type of a thing. But Jack, you tell me, did you take issue with Dave's depiction of the slogan? Yeah, I took issue with the depiction of the slogan, mostly in the sense that, uh, you know, you can point to any group of people if you have a large enough body of people and you could say, well, among them, there are some people who have this view um, and this you know, view is not as bad as maybe some of the others and that kind of thing. We're talking about from the river to the sea, you know, saying, oh, well, maybe some people just want a peaceful, secular state, that kind of thing. And why I didn't appreciate that framing is I thought that it's not really accurately describing the political realities of what is being advocated for and who is in leadership. Because again, we could sit here and talk about, you know, the Amish in America, uh, but the Amish do not represent the people in the U.S. government. And so saying those things are not representative of what it is that is actually desired with that. And I also brought into to context, too, saying that, you know, the same you know, principle applies to Eretz Israel, right? With the Israeli government wanting to capture um, ancient Israel's uh, boundaries, right? No one has any uh, confusion about what that is. It's very obvious they're trying to recapture this area politically. And the same thing applies to from the river to the sea. Um, that has been always since the PLO a mantra about getting rid of the Israeli government, removing the Jews, and setting up um, a a state that is more fashioned to Arab slash Muslim uh, interests. And this type of uh, attitude is, is really, again, not confusing. Um, there was a recent survey done by the Arab World for Research and Development, which again is affiliated with the Brzezette University, West Bank. Over three quarters support Hamas. Uh, they support jihad. They support the brigades. It's not really weird, right? When you say, and we talked about this last time, when you say, oh, okay, well, they want democracy. Okay, cool. And walk through your logic. If you're voting, okay, what's the majority going to vote for? Are they voting to be like, oh, okay, let's open up free trade and have a libertarian order. And, you know, let's get rid of radical um, religious groups and, and that type of ideology. No, of course not. They have this mentality that's been programmed in the same way that we talked about with BLM and being programmed in the universities of a occupier versus victim class mentality. It's a class warfare situation. And so, of course, naturally, the young people have been brought up to believe that the Jews are devils, demons and pigs who need to be removed and they're occupiers and thieves through and through. And anything that's done in terms of violence toward them is just a consequence of Israel's establishment. And so, you know, again, it's not really weird. I, I see this because I'm an anarchist. I step out this on both sides. I'm like, yeah, duh, of course, Israel is trying to get as much land as it can to get the biblical Israel. Of course, those in the Arab world are like, no, we want the Jews out of here. It's not weird. Uh, but making it seem like as if, oh, you know, this is just really a nice chant uh, that's about peace and, and prosperity and free markets and all that stuff is a bunch of nonsense. And it distracts from the reality of what is going on in, in the political reality. 
Dave, do you, yes. do you what are what are your thoughts on Jack's analysis of your take on the slogan? Yeah, so I mean, I would say I wasn't saying you know pretending like it was just some nice chance. You know, when I was talking about specifically activists in the U.S. that say that chant, when people say that that's a call for genocide, I mean, that's just completely ridiculous. That's like saying "Make America Great Again" means we should bring back slavery or taxation is theft implies that we should kill all IRS agents and their families. Um, so, cause I personally know a lot of pro-Palestinian activists. Many of them are Jewish. I was involved. I used to be more of a leftist and I was involved in pro-Palestinian activity. And, you know, I know what most of these people are about. And when they say from the river to the sea, their idea, whether it's, you know, aligned with the political realities or not is, you know, one secular state where everybody has equal rights. Is that going to happen? No. Is that re- like a realistic thing, especially now after the Hamas attack and what Israel's done, been doing in Gaza? No, I don't, I don't believe that that's a reality, but I like to dispel the idea that these people are chanting for a genocide of Jews. I mean, it's just completely ridiculous. In, in these protests, many, there's many Jews and there are lots of stupid leftists who are doing really stupid things like blocking traffic that I think is hurting the Palestinian cause more than anything. And then when it comes to, you know, what people, the, that recent poll that found all this really strong support for Hamas, the crucial context there is that this came after the Hamas attack on Southern Israel and after Israel unleashed its, you know, this horrific bombing campaign and, and ground operation in Gaza can impose the siege, basically using starvation as a weapon They've killed 20,000 people so far. And in the West Bank, there was a lot of violence this year since the Netanyahu government came in at the end of last year and, and very extremist settlers among within the government. And there's been a lot of Israeli raids, just a lot of violence in the West Bank. And there you have the Palestinian Authority, which is basically just a Western Israeli puppet government that doesn't really do anything. And now they see Hamas as the people that are actually fighting for the Palestinians who are facing all this uh, violence. And you say it's like in this narrative of occupier versus oppressor, but the Israeli military occupies the West Bank. They occupied Gaza by, you know, until they pulled out settlements in 2005, but they imposed a blockade on the country. Like that is just the reality of the situation. And it's these Palestinians, you know, it's an untenable situation, keeping people under military occupation for so long. So, yes, BLM has de- certainly co-opted this this cause, but, you know, the people of the West Bank, the Palestinians, you know, have the right to their property and and, and everything that, that we all have. And since, you know, this war has been going on in Gaza, the violence has also increased in the West Bank where you have these settlers, very extremist Jewish settlers who are backed by the IDF, breaking into people's homes and saying, we're going to kill you if you don't leave. This is our property now. And when they leave, they burn their houses down. This has been happening you know, it's kind of a smaller scale of what happened when Israel was founded in 1947, 1948 during the Nakba. Um, so this is just a reality that's happening today. And and yeah, there is like the historical grievance part of it, but it's people having to deal with that. And uh, when it comes to solutions, like I said, I, I have no, no clue. And, you know, my ultimate position is that I'm an American non-interventionist and it's not, I just want my government to stop being involved. And the U.S. government is overwhelmingly on the side of the Israelis, giving them billions of dollars in military aid each year. Israel has dropped 22,000 American bombs on Gaza since October 7th. I mean, it's just, you know, it's 
entirely propped up by by the money being extorted from us. So that's why you know I, I take a strong uh, you know kind of anti uh, against Israel's war in Gaza and their occupation in the West Bank because it's so supported by my government. Jack, I know I kind of said a lot there. Oh, we're sorry. Were you addressing me? Uh, yeah, Kelly? Jack. I love how disciplined you are because when you get talking, Jack Jack can talk, um, but you really do try to be like, okay, I don't want to be interrupting, and I appreciate <laughs> that, Jack. What is your response to what David said? Yes, yeah, so, I mean and that's exactly right. I I very much do not want to interrupt you. I want you to have your full thoughts and and to you know talk through everything. I I think that kind of the the framing that we have here that is really. Uh, missing a lot of points um, along the way here is that when you say specifically the Nakba, when you say, you know, okay, Israel is, uh, you know, committing these types of attacks and all the other things, it's starting at a historical point that is so far attenuated from the origins that we're actually missing a huge part of the history um, about who is in this land, how they got there, and what the conflicts were over time. And it's really difficult, you know, to talk about, okay, well, who's an occupier and who's knocking who out and that kind of thing. If you don't even have the history grounded about what took place under the Ottoman empire and then under the British mandate. And then later on, of course, with the establishment of the nation state of Israel. So we can't really, you know, talk about these things, um, without that context, right? We can't really get into it uh, unless we're sitting here and we're saying, okay, okay, okay. Israel's definitely doing bad stuff because of course they're a government. They're certainly, you know, doing horrific things in terms of their four shots on people, disarming people, um, escalating things, of course. So I don't, I'm not here to talk about those things because I'm anti-state like we're all are here. That, that, you know, that's not my focus. My focus is on talking about what happened in this history. And so, you know, with the Gaza Strip, right? The Gaza Strip here didn't not have Jews before. In fact, Jews were present in Gaza until about 1929, uh, routinely, um, until there was a bunch of riots against them. And nearly 135 Jews were killed and massacred uh, by Arabs there who felt frustrated about Jews moving in because Jews were fleeing all different types of persecutions in Europe. Now, again, when we go back further, the Jews there, you know, in the pre-Israeli era, they were buying up land. They were simply buying land from sellers to help flee persecution across Europe. So this idea that, oh, this land was purely owned by, you know, a bunch of Arab Muslim and Christians and that every square inch was homesteaded and every single person there you know, had a specific claim, I think already is this false pretext. It, it's it's just a nonsensical pretext that develops this, as I think you correctly know, leftist narrative about the region. And again, leftist because it's collectivist, right? This is our land. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about the Israeli government or the people trying to create a Palestinian government. The collectivist language is this idea of, oh, okay, well, there were some people here and nobody cared about them and having a government for all these years until, oh, okay, well, now they suddenly want a state and all these different governments are going to play off each other to try to see who can have their new, you know, proxy state to control. So, you know, when we are looking at this situation, we have to remember that the land was 
very minimally in terms of the total landmass actually developed, right? Most of this region was actually in various ways, either under a conflict under the Musha system, which was the Ottoman Empire's um, basically this kind of uh, collective ownership thing where different families would have lots and trade off when they could use certain lands. And during that time, you know, there were certain people who were absentee landlords who had crony deals with the uh, Ottoman Empire to basically own vacant areas of land and charge people for cultivating on it. And as you can imagine, uh, this was not a very successful system because just like with the Jamestown colony, uh, if you have a conflict over scarce resources, right, and you have no incentive to let the let ground lie fallow so you can have, you know, more nutrients um, to, you know, grow for the future, you know, people don't really want to steward because it's constantly changed over. And so, you know, during this time, a big part of the, the conflict, the poverty and all this other stuff came out of the Ottoman land code of 1858. And these different types of uh, arrangements that were made kept people impoverished, you know, and on top of that, you know, the Ottoman Empire was conscripting men. And that, of course, led to poverty with all the men going off to war and dying. And then there was, of course, uh, regional climate issues and famine and bird issues and malaria issues and all this other stuff. So we have a land that had a scant population, often transient, moving even among the people between Syria and at the time Transjordan, who came in and out depending on seasons, who even by the you know the day's terms were illegal immigrants because the British said, no, you can't come in here, but they, they went in anyway. I mean, how can they do that in the desert? They can't really get everybody and check everyone's passports. So, you know, the, the, you have this weird situation where there aren't strong property rights in the first place. Now, that said, of course, some people did have property rights. There certainly were towns, there were settlements, there were tents, there were people who, you know, grazed, but they didn't homestead. So when we're talking about this situation, we can't sit here and say, well, um, you know, it's all just one group of people that is amorphous, you know, with people coming in from different areas surrounding Egypt, Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, Iran, Iraq, the whole gamut of the Middle East. You can't sit there and say, well, you know, these people... You know, they just have a collective right no matter what to this area just because and they can immigrate and move around and oh well I still get it. But there's Jews who were living there at the time and Jews who immigrated there, which again, immigration is ethical. It's ethical for people to flee, just like people left England to come to the Americas, fleeing persecution from the Church of England, fleeing persecution from the Catholic Church. They fled to America just like Jews from all the area surrounding fled to this area. And in fact, when Israel was established and going forward, the 900,000 Jews who were in the Middle Eastern countries were expelled. They were pogromed. They were persecuted. And they themselves were refugees and in numbers greater than people who had fled due to various circumstances that I can get into the Israeli government's establishment. So this idea of this, oh, you're the occupier and you're this bad guy thing, this is the same collectivist, Marxist, leftist nonsense, gobbledygook, anti-proprietarian thinking that underpins every other type of leftist type of anti-colonial, which is what it boils down to, right? We're talking about, ooh, these are some bad white Ashkenazis from Europe and they're coming down and taking the, the dark people's land thing, even though they were just buying it up at prices way above market because they just wanted to escape. You know, this this type of framework is what underpins the conflict. And again, certainly 
There is violence by the Israeli government, unethical violence by the Israeli government. But we can point to that on every single side, on every single government that surrounded Israel, that expelled Jews from Egypt, Iraq, Algeria, Yemen, Lebanon, Syria, Libya, Morocco. They expelled Jews, hundreds and hundreds of thousands. But nobody will sit there and call those people apartheid. No one's going to sit there and say, oh, you know, in Saudi Arabia, where even just up until last year when Trump visited and they had this whole like textbook controversy where they were still teaching eighth graders that uh, the people, the Sabbath are apes and Christians are swine and infidels and they would persecute the minority uh, uh, Shia there and they would literally cut their heads off and put them on crosses and say, you know, if you rebel against the uh, Sunni majority, we're going to behead you. No one goes and says, oh, that's apartheid. Right. One group of people gets, oh, that's apartheid, even though we know for a fact that in Israel, the Arab Muslim population is about 18 percent of population, nearly two million people. Right. And they say, oh, it's a genocide. Well, how are they genociding everybody if you have all these people in Israel who stayed, they didn't flee and they became citizens? So, again, we have a problem of language and labels that is misleading people about the nature of the situation. Again, it's not to rationalize any violence by the by the Israeli government. It's not to rationalize any violence by Hamas or PLO. It is just to move away from collectivism and move toward the discrete specifics of who is doing what, who has what property rights to what, and why. And until one leaves that collectivist paradigm, you cannot have a solution. You can't even begin to think about solutions because you haven't actually ascribed who ethically homesteaded, who is just fleeing in a refugee like anybody else, and what types of actions are either going to bring more peace or more statism. And so that is my focus at the end of the day, is that that's what I care about the most. And we talked about this last time. I'm not a Zionist. You know what I mean? I think it's a choice of anybody to wherever you want to live. I think that's that's up to you. It is, though, a matter of whether or not people are rationalizing more statism, more violence, and more collectivism in the process. And that's why I stand against those things, you know, whether it's from the river, the sea, or red scissors, or whatever. It's I stand against the collectivism of statism. Dave, what are your thoughts on Jack's um, description of standing against statism? Yeah, well, um, <clears throat> there's a few things there. I mean, first of all, this is something I hear from a lot of people. You know, I've been very critical of Saudi Arabia and the U.S. relationship, you know, supporting them in their brutal war in Yemen. Um, and basically of all U.S. alliances in the Middle East, Egypt, the dictatorship that they prop up there, um, which has also not treated the Palestinians well. Um, but getting into the history, I mean, you know, you have to point out, you, you know, when it, you talk about that there is can, can, things that are. Can I ask? Sorry to interrupt. Why uh, did you just clarify that you've been critical of all the other countries over there? Because it's well, not just a, 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 a you're, you're saying that it's not just like a let's blame the Jews thing. It's. That you're consistently, what you're saying is you consistently try to criticize when the United States spends money in the military industrial complex all across the yeah. world. It's not just Israel. Yeah, I made that point because Jack mentioned this, how the Saudis treat, you know, the Shia minorities and everything. And, you know, the U.S. has done a lot to support this, you know, fundamentalist Salafi, uh, you know, um, Islam that that has spread throughout the world. Um but anyway, getting into the history, there is a lot of different dynamics about, you know, when the early Zionists came and, and how they were buying up land, as Jack pointed out, there are these land deeds that were basically 
the Ottomans owned this land that, that was tended by these Arab peasants. Um, but these Arab peasants lived on the land for generations. There were people that were established in homes for going, you know, generationally that were, and then this, this land was purchased and they had to go. And a lot of this was also purchased. There's the Jewish national fund that was buying land specifically to be used for Jews and not Arabs. And when it comes to the, you know, expelling of Jews from other Arab countries, you know, if you look at the history before, and you mentioned the riot, one of the riots in Gaza, and there was other riots in the West Bank in, uh, for, I'm blanking on the city, but it was an area where Jews lived for generations. And after the Zionists showed up and there were tensions between them and the Arabs, there, there were these riots, these anti-Jewish riots and, and atrocities were committed by the Arabs against them. But the overall thing that was happening was this Zionist uh, movement, you know, these Eastern European, mostly young men, revolutionaries were migrating in mass to this area and they were militarized and they were basically saying this is our, you know, our home that, that they wanted to turn it into their homeland. So there is lots of tensions. And when it comes to the land that was purchased and not purchased, it really, uh, when we talk about the expulsions from homes, you have to go to, of course, all that history is is very important. And it was, I believe, only about 11% of the land that became this, the modern state of Israel in 1948 was actually purchased by the Zionists and the Jewish National Fund. Because in 1947 and 1948, when the Zionist militias, you know, basically began taking over uh, these villages that were, that were lived in by Arabs, Palestinian Arabs. There was the Deir Yassin massacre where over 100 women and children were massacred by the Ergun and the Stern gang. And that was basically used as a threat. You know, they really um, hyped that up, the Zionists. They, they weren't secretive about that massacre. They used that to get people scared enough so that they would flee their land. And in some cases, when the, the villages were empty, they would blow up the houses, burn them down. Even in some cases, they poisoned the, the water supply so they wouldn't return. So that is what happened when Israel, uh, the modern state of Israel was founded. And it was after the UN partition was passed in the General Assembly. And, you know, the 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 Arabs were partitioned this land and, and the Jews were partitioned this land. But even in that land, there was going to be a sizable Arab population. And then they started basically taking over these villages and expelling people. And it wasn't until after the Deir Yassin massacre and this influx of refugees went into Jordan and, and uh, na- other neighboring countries that the Arab states actually intervened and it became the, you know, Israel-Arab war. Um, so, you know, this context is important because it's just the, the crux of the issue is that these people, over 700,000 people, were ex- kicked out of their houses when this state was formed and that's not really uh there's not really an argument to be made there i know some people say oh they could have returned but uh they they didn't let them return that's kind of the whole thing and now decades and decades later this idea of a right of return seems silly because it is you know so far back but that that's where that came from was because all of a sudden you had these people packed into refugee camps some still with the keys to their houses uh and and they wanted to go back home so that's all important context. And when it comes to this, the statism thing, you know, and the narratives, like I said, when it comes to the military occupation is a, is a very specific thing. And what's happening in more, you know, the traditional way that you would think of it is more so in the West bank where there's checkpoints and 
Uh, Palestinians don't even really have freedom of movement and they just, you know, their lives are very restricted and you have these settlements expanding and Israeli only access roads. I mean, that's why they call it apartheid because it's similar in that sense of, you know, these specific roads and stuff. And um, so this is just all important context that we have to keep in mind. And, and my view again, is that I want our government to stop being involved in this and I do think if the U.S. cut off Israel right now, again, they're so reliant on our military aid and the backing of the U.S. so that if Hezbollah you know, invades northern Israel, if Iran gets involved, they know that the U.S. is going to intervene. If the U.S. cut Israel off, it would force them to be a little more tactful and uh, you know, open to diplomacy. So that's really my ultimate position. Okay, and Jack, do you have a response to Dave? Yes, I, I do. And I really appreciate that you gave so much wonderful detail because this is going to be a real treat for your listeners. So um, I wanted to kick it off right on the uh, dire Yasser, um, Yasser uh, massacre. So, you know, this is kind of interesting because this was a huge propaganda piece uh, for, you know, a Palestinian government for many years, you know, over 50 years. And it's actually only been a, a recent intellectual uh, discovery and uncovering after 30 years of research by a uh, professor named Aliezer Tauber that this narrative is actually a false narrative. And so what I want people to check out again, so you can just check this for yourself, the massacre that never was, the myth of the dire Yassin and the creation of the Palestinian refugee problem. So this is a very important uh, discourse here because this has been a leftist propaganda piece for so long, and it has left been left unchallenged for so long until a really brave man went and did direct interviews of the people who were there and their descendants and with declassified documents and did a thorough study of everything. And so what we actually have come to you know find in truth, is that when the Israelis and the Urgun came up to that area, they actually told people to flee and got them out of there because they were going to fight against people who were coming to attack. They were cutting. They were cutting off um, the uh, the roads uh, from Jerusalem. There was an Arab blockade, and while there certainly were people killed, Egypt did a weapons drop in that area, and. Among those people, certainly some 24 armed fighters were killed. There were some family members with them who were killed. There's some that, you know, were in a gray zone, uncertain exactly what happened. But what we do know is that more than 200 residents not only were left unharmed through a corridor that they gave to them saying, hey, guys, get out of here. We're, you know, we're fighting the, these uh, attacking groups. Forty elderly men, women and children on, were taken on trucks to a base in Sheikh Bader. So this idea that, oh, the, the Jews went and they just shot up this town and they raped the women. And then that's like, oh, see, this is why these other, you know, Arab League governments got to come together and they got to, you know, take out the Jews was actually founded on a lie. And on top of that, the houses actually had fortified doors. They switched out their, their doors from wood to metal to prepare it to, you know, for a conflict. So this idea that, you know, oh, the, you know, the Jews are just these savages and they're they're just here to kill women and children is a total nonsensical thing. This has actually been de be debunked 
and well-reviewed within the past few years. So if this is something that you've been only knowing about for, you know, you've been talking about for, you know, whatever, five years, 10 years, maybe even 2019, you know, when you started, you wouldn't even know about it unless you look back into it and see the, the latest research into this. It's pretty wild. It's pretty wild when you actually go past the propaganda of it. And again, in this book, there are direct interviews of people who were there. So this is not some, you know, this is not someone who's, oh, I'm a keyboard warrior in the United States. This is someone who actually was physically there and went there to do the direct interviews. So we need to start to peel back a lot of this propaganda that is put out there about, you know, what happened with the situation. In truth, in truth, it was a more complicated situation with people leaving and fleeing. And I do know that you made the point, okay, well, if they fled. And then, you know, they weren't let back in. That's that's not cool. I agree. That's That certainly is not cool for those people and certainly was tough. But they were in a rock and a hard place, right? Because on one hand, some people were leaving because they thought, okay, well, if we leave, Egypt's going to come in, wipe out the Jews, and we'll come back to our homes in two weeks. On the other hand, some people were like, mm, okay, well, I don't want to be seen as a traitor. Um, so maybe I'll just go and then, you know, go to Syria, maybe come back later, you know, go to Damascus, right? Some people, you know, were forced out by um, by Jewish uh, Ergun. You know, that's that's also a true part. And Betty Morris covered that very well um, in his research. So is the point is I'm bringing nuance to this conversation in a way that others are not being honest about. And this uh, this note that, oh, people were being told to leave is is actually very well corroborated. The Near East Arabic Broadcasting Station uh, report on April 3rd, 1949. They said it must not be forgotten that the Arab Higher Committee encouraged the refugees flight from their homes in Jaffa, Haifa and Jerusalem. The Egyptian Daily, Akbar al-Yam, October 12th, 1963, reported that the Grand Mufti had issued the same call to Arabs to leave. The 15th May 1940 arrived. On that day, the Mufti of Jerusalem appealed to the Arabs of Palestine to leave the country because the Arab armies were about to enter and fight in their stead. So again, this is not something that's weird. It's not something that's unusual. There was a conflict that took place because they didn't like that the Israelis were there and that they were setting up a, a Jewish homeland. Now, again, in terms of the status context, of course, I'm against all governments. But if we're going to sit here and pretend like, oh, OK, well, these other governments were just rainbows for everybody else. And, oh, it was great that they did this violence. Well, now we got a problem because now it's rationalizing one government versus another. It's not no government. And the idea of, oh, well, this is apartheid, right? There, This type of language, nobody's using this for any other country. Nobody's sitting here and saying, oh, you know what? Iraq, they're apartheid. Saudi Arabia, apartheid, despite their strong Sharia law that specifically persecutes people who are Jewish, Christian, Hindu, and specifically keeps women in a lower second tiered status in terms of social, economic, political rights. No one goes as well. They're apartheid. And this should come as no surprise because on antiwar.com, there's only one state that has ever been called for a boycott. And that's Justin Raimondo, 2019, before he passed, right? He says boycott Israel, private boycott. I'll give him that. Only one country, not the CCP and their one and two child policies and their mass pogroms and starvation, Tiananmen Square, their spying system, their disappearing dissidents and the Chinese firewall and oppression of Hong Kong. No, that doesn't require a boycott. Saudi Arabia persecuting, murdering people, beheading people, literally telling kids that Christians and Jews are are literally evil and, and devils and 
basically saying, hey, if you're a if you're the son of a Muslim and you convert, we're going to cut your head off. Right. No, no apartheid there. And I think it's really kind of sad that this type of framing is being done for just Israel in this way, because it it causes people to believe that the chief problems in the Middle East is about Jews and Israel and not statism and ethno-religious nationalism that permeates the entire Middle East. It is not limited to the Jewish state. This exists everywhere else with 22 other Arab countries, right? Way more square miles of coverage, way more places for people who are Muslim to have a home. But just because the Jews migrate down, they try to find refuge just like the Americans did in a, in North America, that is the, the British uh, coming on over and fleeing, just like them trying to find refuge. Their occupiers, their settlers, their colonists, they're all evil. They're all bad. Now, again, are there bad things? Yes. Just like the United States government forcibly removed the natives off land and put them into reservations where they were held at gunpoint and told you couldn't go anywhere. Sound familiar? Like with the Gaza and the West Bank? Of course. But you will never hear somebody say the Cherokee should rule the federal government or the Sioux should rule the federal government, or we need to create a two-state solution in Alabama and Georgia, you know, so that those native tribes can finally have their homeland back. You will never hear someone say, hey, Germany needs to have a two-state solution for the Jews because they had a significant population that was decimated by the government and they have a national identity and they just want to have self-determination. You will never hear that. You'll never hear in Egypt. You'll never hear in Morocco. You'll never hear in Syria or anywhere else with a significant Jewish population saying, hey, they need to have a two-state solution for Jews. You will only hear a two-state solution for the people in the permanent refugee status of Gaza and for the Palestinians. And because why we understand economically, if you fund and incentivize that ideology, and I talked about this before, in the same way that the Israeli government's being given money for weapons. What do you think is going to happen? You give them $300 billion, you're going to incentivize warfare. Duh. But why is it that when the UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, when they're given billions of dollars year after year to subsidize 30,000 people who are working there to be permanent refugees and to promote the narrative that they're constantly oppressed and it's all or nothing thinking, and that's how they're trained to be that, oh, it's, you're all bad. Right. And that's it. You know, you're oppressors. You're keeping our land in a collective sense. Nobody even bats an eye at that. No one even thinks, oh, you know what? I wonder if what that incentive does for the next generation and and inroads for peace. So, again, we could sit here and talk all day about, hey, this government's bad. This government's bad, blah, blah, blah. My problem is with this situation that we have a one-sided narrative, a one-sided bias about the violence. And the only way to move away from that is to start recognizing the collectivism is not only in Israel. It is on every single country surrounding. The violence is everywhere surrounding. And if you only use genocide and if you only use apartheid with Israel, you will create a group of young men who will grow to believe that the Jews are their enemy and their problem and that they need to be extinguished and eradicate, uh, uh, eradicated. And this is not confusing, right? This this mentality is everywhere. You can go on any Twitter feed and go look at pictures. You read through every single thing and you have hook-nosed Jews and Jews being considered, oh, you know, you're just vermin. You should be ex exterminated, right? People, if Jews say that, they're like, oh, obviously these settlers, they're so like, oh, this is my land and yo, you shouldn't be here. And obviously, yeah, that's collectivist and evil. But on the flip side, that is excused, that is ignored, and it's downplayed to the point that people have a distorted view of reality. And until people understand that this situation is way more complicated than people are making it out to be, and that the truth is, is that very little of the land was actually homesteaded. 
properly in a libertarian theory perspective, we cannot get anywhere because everyone's going to keep collectivizing like, oh, it's all my land. Oh, it's all my land. And it's like, no, it was very few people's land. And the people who even had it back then under the Ottoman Empire, they themselves had cronyism. They had crony deals. They had conflict over the tragedy of commons. And they didn't themselves even have a specific homestead except for maybe where they lived in a tent or in a little mud hut in the city, whereas everything else was desert. So again, I want people to get out of that collectivism, get out of these leftist lies and narratives for decades that are readily debunkable, and to actually start to think about this from a true libertarian perspective, which 100% agree with Dave on, the beginnings to that is ending the support of war and funding it and all this other stuff. And that needs to happen everywhere because Israel is not the only government who gets money and weapons from the United States government. We know that very well. You know, Operation Cyclone and giving money and weapons to Iraq and Iran and every other person, Saudi Arabia, right? Even with 9-11, they didn't go after Saudi Arabia, even though there's a, a trail there of, of funding. Why? Because the Prescott, you know, Bush and everybody else in their little oil game. So we know for a fact that they're playing both sides, as it's always been, playing both sides of the war, funding both sides. Even Joe Biden was like, we need to have a, well, and he's a meat puppet, but $100 million for the Palestinians in the wake of October 7th, right? They're playing both sides constantly. And we need to say, hey, enough is enough, but don't downplay the collectivist problems that exist all around because it's not that simple. It's not, oh, okay, the Jews are these, these devils from Europe. No, they're fleeing persecution and most of them are themselves refugees and the government is screwing everybody there by escalating the violence and even doing more harm to Jews by forcing shots into everybody. Again, that's more than Hamas has ever done for, you know, shots forced on everybody. That's more than Hamas has ever done just in that one act alone. So again, government sucks and is evil and we should be recognizing that across the board. Dave, your thoughts on Jack's response? Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, the first thing I would challenge the your narrative about the Darius-Seen uh, massacre I mean, I know um, it's, you know, more nuanced than just they went in and killed all the women and children. And part of the reason why there's a, a propaganda narrative about it is because the, they, uh, the Zionists hyped it up themselves because they wanted to scare the Arabs into fleeing. And I know that there is strong evidence that there was a massacre there. So I would need to, you know, look at what evidence you have. And, and just one book about it doesn't, doesn't dispute the the reality. And I know recently there was a, a Israeli veteran, an old man who was involved in the Dariusine massacre when the war started. He said something on social media and he talked about Dariusine and he said they killed the, the women, the men and the children. He claimed they were terrorists, but he admitted to killing them. Um, and then, I mean, I'm trying to, I lost my train of thought there for a second. I was, there was another one of your points that I wanted to uh, respond to, but when it comes to the anti-Semitism and all this stuff that we're seeing online, um, I mean, what Israel's doing right now, I mean, I don't know if you've seen much of it online of the number of children that are being killed by Israeli bombs. I mean, this, this is indisputable. This is happening on the ground and there's, there's, you have Palestinian journalists on Instagram who could, you could watch them go from airstrike site to airstrike site and see dead and maimed children being pulled out of the rubble. And they're doing this in the name, you know, under the under the Israeli flag in the name of Jews. And they say anybody who criticizes us is anti-Semitic. So I would say that the, what's causing this anti-Semitism right now is, is the state of Israel's actions and doing this as if they're representing all uh, Jews. So um, this is something this is another reason why, you know, it's in 
the interest of the Israelis to, to end this war, to stop doing what they're doing. And, and that's why we're, they're just seeing a lot of internal discontent because Netanyahu, basically, his political career is shot for letting that October 7th attack happen unless he can keep this war going. And you see the hostages' families are very angry with him. Um, and then you mentioned the Justin Romando thing, boycott Israel. The thing that you seem to be missing from the context is the I, I really think it's important the the amount of US support and Israeli influence, Israeli government influence on our country and the way that they uh influence our politicians to support them and send these billions each year, the way they smear people. Thomas Massey recently has been voting against all this new Israel legislation and you know, APAC put out all these ads going after him, and there's anti-BDS laws on the books in 30 American states that basically gives the state the ability to punish individuals or companies who engage in a boycott of Israel in different ways the the the, the laws work. But some of them, if, if you're a contractor and you're entering a, a contract with, with a state entity, say even like a school district, and some of these states, you have to agree that you're, you won't boycott the state of Israel. So it just... And, and even the conversation about Israel in the United States is very different than elsewhere around the world. It's much more nuanced, say, in, in Europe. Here, you know, there's this, the, like, you just get ca- called all, all sorts of names, anti-Semite, if you challenge them or if you say we should boycott Israel. And uh, people point to all these other countries. But it's a unique relationship that the U.S. has with Israel. It's very uh, unique, even though, as you mentioned, we give foreign aid to all these countries. Before this Ukraine war started, uh, Israel was the top recipient. And next to them is Egypt. And the reason why Egypt gets so much military aid is because they agreed to this uh, treaty with Israel. And it's about enforcing that. Um, so it's just, it, it's very, uh, it permeates our politics on the, on the federal level. And I know, you know, you're a libertarian and I'm a libertarian. Um, and this is all kind of, you could chalk this up to statism, but I think it is uh, important um, to focus on the crimes of our own state. That's something I always believed. And that's some, one of the reasons why I became a libertarian, because that's something Rothbard laid out in For a New Liberty. Um, so, yeah, that's our. That's why on antiwar.com you'll see, you know, same thing with the Ukraine-Russia situation. None of us support the Russian invasion, but we've been much more critical of the Ukrainian side, because that's where all our tax dollars are going. And what they've done to those people uh, is horrific. What the, the U.S. basically convinced them to not sign a peace treaty with Russia to fight that war. And I mean, that's uh, on, you know, it's just such evil. And uh, the same, we're seeing the same evil play out today. How are we supporting a mass slaughter of children? No matter what the situation is, no matter what the context or the history is, there's no reason for us to be supporting that. Um, so I think that's why we try to focus on this. Jack, your your thoughts on on Dave's description? Yeah, sure. So there's certainly issues there in terms of talking about the aid that's given to Israel. Absolutely a problem. Certainly one of the biggest recipients of aid of all time. But the idea that, oh, they're always the biggest thing. I mean, 2019 Afghanistan got more aid than Israel. So this this idea that, oh, the U.S. government isn't funding everybody at different points and different times, depending on the political interest, who's in office and all this other stuff, it, it's just kind of nonsense. What we really have is that because of the Israeli lobby, there's a disproportionate focus on that. And they're like, oh, see, APAC, they're, they're lobbying here and they're, they're asking for more aid and for all the censorship stuff. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that's bad, obviously. But we can't take that, the actions of that small group, and then say, oh, okay, and therefore, um, no matter what, they're just the number one evil of all time when 
these framings ignore the other types of support that's done, whether it's with the Saudi Arabian government and their lobbying efforts or other governments that are funded, then it turns into blowback, obviously, you know, with the Mujahideen and the Taliban, all this other stuff, and then running guns um, with the uh, Syrian rebel to turn to ISIS, all this stuff. I mean, it, it is absolutely nuts. And the, the focus that is on Israel, um, I think, is... Uh, at least in the framing, it ends up being a bit disingenuous because no one is taking the dead Israeli children and running with those pictures, right? Like even on the Human Rights Watch website, when they had the October 7th video, they said their little disclaimer, well, we're, we're, we're pouring through the videos, this or that. And eventually they released the videos and you have Hamas literally blowing people's heads off and showing them dead bloodied on the streets, you know, going to this festival and killing people, right? But you, that's not like, hey, front page, anti-war. Hey, uh, you know, ally, we're going to focus on Jews being killed and the Jewish babies being killed. You'll get all day, every day. Oh, here, let's pull this little kid out of the rubble. Again, horrible horrible but there is a difference in the framing and the framing is inherently the focus of oh israel is this occupying force and they're all bad and all these jews they need to you know either accept this two state or one state solution and let these people vote or or you know you're just rationalizing this uh, the zionist violent statism and it, it's to me, it does a great disservice to the message of liberty because it ends up creating a psychological framework that points back fingers to every other form of colonial output from the British and French empire around the world. Because again, as Americans here, our history is riddled with slavery, uh, black codes, Jim Crow laws, redlining. We have mass violence against all types of people, you can, as you can imagine, uh, with Native Americans being removed, um, with people being specifically attacked over certain uh, biases, like with the drug war and that having a, you know, a black and hippie focus. Um, you know, you, you can go on and on and on about all these different violent programs and manipulations and, and incarcerations all day, right, about what it is, you know, taking place here in America. Uh, but you, again, you will never hear someone say, well, America's apartheid and America has this racist colonial history of imperialists and therefore Americans need to accept two state solutions or, oh, you know, unless you let the Native Americans vote um, in American elections, then then, you know, you're just continuing this oppression. It, it's kind of it's kind of wild, the self-fulfilling prophecy. I, it's just like I can't even imagine if, if the Cherokee started picking up rockets and blowing up, you know gay nightclubs would people be like oh well i guess you know they were oppressed so if if they blow up some gay nightclubs of people had nothing to do with any of this and their generations out well what you know what's the big deal i guess they're just you know an oppressed people right it's the same thing it's the same exact thing and a big part of that problem is because of this passing the buck and passing the ball of responsibility from countries like egypt right egypt literally was the administrator of the gazan strip the, the literally egypt had it they had it, you know, after, you know, 48 and up until, you know, roughly 67, right? They actually assumed control in different ways. And nobody sat there and said, well, that's just an impossibility. Egypt can't, you know, accept these people, even though they lost the 48, they lost the 67, where, oh, you know, they can't accept these people and let them to become citizens there. No, it has to be Israel that takes them in, even though that's the government that was administrating them, that literally had them for all those years. And not only that, people came from there, people came from Syria, Lebanon, and so on and so forth. So again, the framing, the labeling, the way it's done is in such an intriguing way to demonize. Again, it's a leftist paradigm, language paradigm, 
but it's meant to distract from the fact that there is actually still violence with these other governments and countries and that, oh, just because you let these people vote as citizens in, the, in Israel, that's going to make peace, right? It's nonsense. It's, it's, it is distracting from the truth until we have a cultural change, which needs to come from freeing the market, from respecting property rights, and from maybe even pushing for, you know, some type of, of uh, uh, peace with Egypt in this, in this kind of way. There, you're not going to have peace you can't. You can't have it if people are fundamentally indoctrinated. Believe again, both sides, hardcore Zionist shoes, hardcore uh, radical uh, Islamic fundamentalists. If they believe that the other side is devils and pigs, and oh, they need to be exterminated. Well, yeah, you're going to have fighting forever. So, I really want people to take away from this discussion that the framing, as relates to the situation, um, is really disingenuous to the nature of the relationships. And again, in, in any other context, no one uses this kind of language. Like I, I said last time, the Hindu persecution in Pakistan, right? British government says, India, we're going to partition here. We're going to have Pakistan. New state, just like Israel, just out of the, the British mandate. There was a million people killed, 14 million people displaced, way more than you have with Gaza and West Bank by orders, you know, magnitudes bigger. And there's still persecution to this day because it's, you know, Islamic majority, they persecute Hindus, Christians, Jews, and there was 1500 Hindus who just had to seek asylum in uh, India. No one is going around. Pakistan is an apartheid state. We need to bring them down, whatever. You, you just don't have that because again, it's the same vicious cycle of the media focus. The media hypes up everybody for a certain time. It's, oh, okay. Uh, Last needs last month's beat is Ukraine. This month's Israel. What's going to be next month? Right? They they run people into these frenzies and they try to get them to pick sides and adopt Marxist collectivist language. And then they have them miss the truth of what's going on, which is that people are rationalizing these types of ethno-religious statism supremacy constructs for themselves and collectivism and furthering that divide. They are not breaking people away from that and pushing them toward liberty and principle proper rights and helping them think through that. They are literally just, oh, it's all them or it's all us for good or for bad. And until people get away from that collectivist leftist language that they clearly do not apply in any other context to any of those governments, again, no one at antiwar.com is is saying that uh, Egypt needs a two-state solution for the 75,000 Jews that were expelled or Algeria. You know, they need a two-state solution for the 140,000 Jews that were expelled. Nobody will say that ever. Nobody is going to, to, to be like, oh, okay, well, that's okay for them, right? There's no restitution for them, you know, for the Iraqi Jews who were forced out and had their possessions taken by the government. Because, you know, if they want to leave and, you know, expatriate, like, well, you can only bring 50 dinar with you and you can have two shirts, right? Nobody's sitting here saying, well, they need to have restitution. Nobody cares. The fact is nobody cares because the media didn't tell them to care. And until we as libertarians, if we're serious about our stuff, actually have a robust discourse on this in a way that brings up all these different facts and doesn't excuse them which even I think Rothbard did wrongly. He was talking about Egypt and, and the, the blockade, right? Which Egypt nationalized the Suez Canal, right? So, okay, so Egypt nationalizes the Suez Canal and wants to block off trade coming through there with, you know, France and Britain and, and Israel, you know, free trade, people just trying to transport goods and services and this or that. Oh no, you know, the government nationalized it and see, well, that's just a justified response to the creation of Israel. It is this nonsense, this anti-free trade nonsense, this anti-human nonsense that perpetuates this at a language and psychological level until it's broken and shifted from, we cannot have peace. You know, again, these blockades, whatever it is, or these um, 
you know, bans like in Lebanon, they say if you do business with a, with a Jew, you can be arrested. Like you can't use Fiverr because that's based out of Tel Aviv. And if you do that, you're going to be put in jail. So these types of things need to be spoken against across the board. And until we have that, we can't have peace. It's just, it's just not going to happen. So I'm trying to get to the root, you know, and as they say, you know, if, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I think that when you're in a mindset of foreign policy and, oh, let me just read the news stories. Let me just report on what's going on in the AP and Reuters news wires. All it is is reading whatever it is. And okay, here's, here's what's going on. Here's the facts of the day instead of the philosophy. We need the philosophy. And if we don't have that in the process, then all we're doing is repeating the mass media stories uncritically. And I think that that is going to end up causing a lot of uh, harm psychologically and intellectually um, for people in the end, if they do not have that ro more robust philosophy about property rights and about the history of these various governments. That is a lot to uh, re respond to, Dave, before I pass it off to you. Jack, I have one quick question for you. If you could give me a as abbreviated of an answer as possible. You've mentioned antiwar.com a couple times, mentioned Justin Raimondo. Would you, Jack Lloyd, would you say antiwar.com throughout its existence has contributed to anti-Semitism? I don't think they've directly contributed to anti-Semitism. Like, in, in other words, they're not sitting there and saying, oh, be anti-Semitic. It's rather a, a framing issue, right? If you if you are presenting a narrative and in that narrative, it's it, the language that's the loaded context language that's used characterizes one group in uh, this overarching evil nemesis sense, right? You, you, these are apartheid people. These are racists. These are, you know, these occupying uh, violent, you know, kind of people, right? That will ultimately cause in people, the effect of that is to get them to have a subconscious association of pure demonization, right? And this can happen on anybody, right? If you use, if you use consistent negative framing language, loaded language on one group, but you don't use it for anybody else, right? You don't call. And every time you speak about you know Saudi Arabia, you're not writing apartheid, you're not, you know, you're not writing, um, oh, they're occupiers. Okay. Well then you're going to think in terms of, oh, I guess Israel's the only occupier. Oh, I guess they're, they're the only apartheid place, right? Because that's, that is the focus and the framing that's repeated so much to a point where you only have one government ever called for a boycott ever. And again, private boycott. So I'm not trying to confuse like a state boycott, no private, but nonetheless, boycott Israel as an article, just a reminder, March 4, 2019. This is literally showing that bias. It's a bias, again, and of course, they'll say it's warranted because it's like, well, Israel's extra bad, or I really think that they're a cause of all these Middle Eastern conflicts, you know, ignoring all the conflicts that happened before Israel, ignoring, you know, the violence of the various empires and the, you know, the, the British Empire, the French Empire, uh, the Oz Ottoman Islamic Empire and all those conquests, right? Oh, you know, it's just Israel, you know, the, the real uh, problems here because they lobby in America and, you know, they, they're trying to, you know, get this land. It's like, yeah, I mean, like every other conquering government ever, it's, it's you know, it, it, nationalism in the 20th century was not unique to Israel. Everyone was a nationalist after World War I when they're redrawing the boundaries and everyone's making up new places, but no one gets as triggered about the new map boundary drawings that again were made by a bunch of statist governments with a bunch of BS reasons because each of them is playing their political you know, cards like, okay, how do we want to structure this to our you know, benefit? They don't care about everywhere else. And and, the, and those boundary you know, re, map redrawings of World War I, World War II, it's just like, oh, okay, you know, whatever. You know, it's 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 just what it is. It's when there's a political Marxist leftist 
uh, anti-colonial mindset underpinning this particular conflict that it inflames it to a level that is just really unprecedented and uncharacteristic for anywhere else where, again, similar atrocities are happening, similar warring groups over religious majorities are taking place. Mass violence and U.S. government funding you know, through back channels and the CIA, you know, and, and the drug war, our direct funding, our foreign aid that ends up, you know, going to the, the elite of a certain country. It's happening everywhere. But because of the Jewish presence in media and everywhere else, it gets inflamed a bit more. So people pay attention to a bit more because there's Jews like, hey, you know, this is a problem for us. And people in reaction are like, oh, well, these Jews are in the media and they're talking to us about, you know, Israel, and what's going on. Right. So you're going to have a heightened focus on that. But the heightened focus should not be a cause for distraction from the broader picture that around the world, these violent things are taking place. Like Myanmar, far more people are getting massacred in Myanmar right now and far more people being displaced. Does anybody care about Myanmar? No, no one gives a crap about Myanmar. So again, it is just a matter of hot button issue framing by selective media bias. And if we want to be strong libertarian philosophers and get people out of collectivist thinking, we need to move back from that a bit and really look at the situation as a holistic thing and be advocates for peace through property rights and free trade. And that is the solution always if we actually want to build inroads for peace. Dave, is there anything to what Jack is saying? What are your thoughts on on Jack's words? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. One thing I wanted to say, you know, he keeps saying, oh, why, why don't they call for a two-state solution here or there? And if, you know, Native Americans in this country were, say the reservations were under military occupation, say they didn't have uh, equal rights, they didn't have voting rights, then yeah, that would probably be a conversation. It's it's again, you know, and, and you mentioned the Marxist leftist framing, and I agree that a lot of there, there's a lot of loaded language and stuff. Um, but Israel is militarily occupying the West Bank of Gaza. They've been doing it since 67. That's the reality. There's no disputing that. And when we talk about loaded language, my work at antiwar.com, I don't use loaded language. You never see me say apartheid. I, I have reported on, you know, the declaration from these human rights organizations that Israel is an apartheid state. Um, and, you know, the way our philosophy, because it seems like you're taking an issue with the way I cover the news or the way antiwar.com runs, our philosophy is that we're libertarians. You know, we're all pretty much Rothbardian libertarians, which you know, of course, there's a lot of things Rothbard, I could say I disagree with. I think that's the closest way to describe me. I'm more right-leaning now that I become a father as I'm getting older, kind of the natural progression in life. But we're single issue and we work with leftists and we work with conservatives and we work with whoever uh, we think is putting out information that's worth sharing to put forward, you know, more anti-war non-interventionists. We're specifically non-interventionists because it's the most consistent with, you know, peace and prosperity, and especially in in where America is geographically located, we have a uh, benefit that that a lot of countries don't. Um, and I know personally a lot of people that you know I have a lot of leftists that listen to my show that that read my articles every day, and I know people that have become libertarians through that. And I know Scott Horton has turned a bunch of leftists into libertarians because they listen to his show every day and he's consistently anti-war, just like just like we are at antiwar.com. Consistency and they appreciate that and, and they become libertarian. We're doing a different thing. You know, and Scott doing is is doing some of the more libertarian philosophy philosophy stuff with the Libertarian Institute. But for us at antiwar.com and Scott's main 
uh, job. We're doing a different thing. We're, you know, anti-war libertarians, and we want libertarians to, to lead a new anti-war movement in the U.S. that's not leftist, that's not Marxist. One of the biggest forces to end the, try to end the war in Yemen in, in recent years were libertarians, uh, you know, and, and it was mostly leftist groups that we were working with, but we made our voices loud enough that people noticed. I spoke with some lobbyists in DC that are like left, you know, progressive groups. And they say they noticed these, this, they're getting calls. Congress is getting calls, emails from people that sound right wing that sound, uh, you know, not like leftists telling them that explaining why we shouldn't be supporting these wars. And that's Saudi Arabia. I mean, for the past, most of my focus in, in my work at antiwar.com since I started, um, and before I started, just my activism was focused on Saudi Arabia and the war in Yemen. So, like, this idea that I'm just focusing on Israel is, is nonsense, and I look at conflicts around the world, and there's so many to choose from that I cover the ones that the U.S. is involved in. So that's what we're, you know, that's that's what, what I'm doing, and, and my job is to, to inform people to help activists, you know, have the knowledge, because if a, a, a activist has more knowledge than the people they're challenging, you know, it looks good. And, and the fact is, if you read the news every day, if you read antiwar.com every day, not even that, just pay attention, just get kind of some, some historical context. And, and you know, more than anybody in Congress than any of these warmongers do, because they're just fret, fed a, a main line of propaganda. And right now I think it is a problem that there's all this leftist Marxist TikTok stuff going on when it comes to Israel. I think, um, we're trying to, you know, make more people like us uh, talk about this issue. So, yeah, I mean, that's what we're doing. And, and the focus on Israel, there's, it, it's very clear why we focus on Israel. It's very important. I mean, we've talked for almost an hour and you haven't mentioned anything about, you know, you say, oh, it's bad. But this is the greatest, you know, mass slaughter, basically, uh, in recent years that's going on in Gaza right now. Yes, the October 7th Hamas attack was horrific. And we did cover it at antiwar.com. But in just a few days, Israel killed more people in Gaza, killed more children in Gaza than were even killed on October 7th. So that's why we're focused on it. And again, this is supported by our government and the whole world sees this. This is going to create blowback, going to create more terrorism, going to create more anti-Semitism. That's why we are so opposed to this. So I think this focus on the narrative, the framing is a distraction when we as libertarians could be speaking up about this in, you know, from a more libertarian point of view and kind of get get in the mix and not just be relegated to our libertarian corner of the internet. I would rather be part of the conversation. Uh, you know, that that's kind of the, my thinking when it comes to what we're doing at antiwar.com. Jack, as always, you are, are very patiently waiting for me to, this is the most peaceful disagreement in a way that you guys aren't like taking personal <laughs> shots really or, or anything, but I think this is, I just have to, I should say I have to, Wrap okay. up kind of soon. So. Okay, that's so, no yeah, problem. Um, we'll start the process. Jack, I will pass the baton back to you. Sure. And so, Dave, just real quick, just want to make sure you know your work is, is otherwise great. There's nothing that I have a problem with with your work generally. I love what you guys are doing. I think you're doing a great job um, generally with covering important stories and awakening people to state violence. So I don't want that to be lost in the conversation. My narrow focus is simply on 
which language is promoted again, which is not even necessarily you. There are many people who submit articles on anti-war.com and there's a long history well before you ever came. So I'm talking about a, a long-term history um, and Scott Horton as well and all that stuff. So um, I do think that, you know, it is interesting to say that, you know, okay, the slaughter is, is uh, you know, one of the biggest when, you know, the deaths and injuries in Ukraine are near 500,000. I, I, I don't see how that, you know, even pales, you know, in comparison, like, it seems like as if, again, we're back at hyperbole, just like we were talking about, like, oh, okay, it's not hyperbole, it, 20, over 20,000 people in just over two months. And, you know, the, the number of children, over 8,000 children, that's more, it's been like, and the where'd UN's, you get that number from? The UN's confirmed that 500 Wait, you kids just said the killed. UN. There you go. So I'm talking about Ukraine. I'm talking about Ukraine. Now you're going to oh. challenge the numbers, but the US and Israel have both said that the numbers coming out of Gaza are accurate. They say that they're probably actually higher. And that this is what happens when people are confronted with the horrors that are happening here is that they they challenge, they say, oh, that's probably not true. But it is true. The Israelis have said that they're fighting human animals in Gaza. They want to kick them all out or kill as many as they can. So it's not hyperbole. Listen to what Israeli government officials say. This is part of the problem is that the conversation in this country, everybody's so touchy about it. But just look at what's actually happening. And of course, question the numbers. But if you've been paying attention, you know that the number is probably actually low. I, I uh, again, respond to specifically of what you said, the whole point being that when it comes to the conflict and when it comes to who is being harmed, absolutely wrong with what the Israeli government is doing in terms of escalation. So there's there's no argument for me there in terms of innocent people being killed. Absolutely horrible. Always against that. It is rather that, as always, the question is, is what is someone then parroting as their primary focus, right? You don't, people are not sitting there saying, oh, okay, well, let's keep focusing on, on the Jewish kids that are dead. Okay, no, it has to be, oh, the Palestinian kids that are dead, right? It's, it's this whole thing where it's like, okay, no, we're going to focus on this one group. We're going to ignore this group. We'll give that, you know, one day new coverage. Okay, we're going to move on. That is a part of the framing bias that I'm speaking to. And this idea that, okay, the Jews are, are killing everybody, this kind of thing. I mean, we got some serious intellectual problems here. Because again, um, if the Israeli government wanted to turn the place to glass, they very well could. They have the resources and the technology. Yet, People have been living, growing, and reproducing, doubling the population since Israel, you know, was established. And there are literally, again, 1.8 or 9 um, million people who are of Arab, you know, Muslim uh, descent here, uh, specifically in Israel. So this narrative of, oh, it's genocide. Oh, they're going to, you know, kill all this other, other stuff and people. Again, murder, 100%. But the hyperbole and the framing doesn't match reality. It does not match reality. In reality, IDF is going in after these guys. And again, not saying I agree with whatever the methods are doing. They're going and they, they round a guy, strip them to see if they have weapons, also their stuff. They, they are going and trying to find people specifically. In the process, of course, are they dropping bombs on innocent people? Yes. And that's horrific. And that needs to end immediately. So there was a report in an Israeli am, magazine, 972 magazine, that basically said part of the strategy is to purposely target civilian areas, civilian targets to, you know, the idea is to put pressure on Hamas, but never in the history of an air war has, has that strategy worked. And this is also the, the heaviest bombing campaign. The only thing really comparable to this is uh, the bombings during world war two. And that's what Israel has pointed to, to justify what they're doing. The, the, we're talking about Dresden, Hamburg, uh, Japanese cities. That's the scale of this. That's why it's it's not hyperbole. And, and, and it's not, again, this is, Biden said this. President Biden said Netanyahu pointed to what the U.S. and the Allies did during World War II as justification for what they're doing. So at, that's why it's just like, this isn't just some 
another conflict that's happening. This is one of the worst ones in recent history, and it's being entirely propped up by the U.S. government. So that's why we're so strongly opposed to it. And I think it's entirely reasonable. And I think what you're doing right now is just trying to basically justify state violence on this mass scale. Uh, you're saying, oh, they go in, they, they check the guys, strip them. I mean, this is, again, a mass slaughter. There's, there's no other word for it. I don't use the term genocide because it is a specific thing. But what's happening in Gaza right now is a mass slaughter. And, you know, it's something we should be very focused on. Yes, I agree that uh, ending mass slaughter is absolutely key. I just find that there's there's two things that are messed again because I'm libertarian philosopher and I think about it in economics and there's two key things to take away. One, a mass slaughter is certainly horrific, but people don't care about it when it's a slow bleed. You know, when you have attacks against uh, Jewish children blowing up school buses or shooting people in cities that's been happening, you know, suicide bombs like what happened in Tel Aviv with 11 dead, 70 injured in 2006. When you have repeated attacks over time and it's not, you know, in one shot, okay, a thousand people are killed because you hit some center, people don't care, right? You know, the, the whole thing, 10 deaths, 10 deaths is a, a tragedy and 10,000 is a statistic. Nobody cares about the slow bleed of Jews being killed by Hamas when it's just one-off terrorist attacks. But if Israel does a response, then it's like, oh my gosh, see all these people being killed. But it's like, yeah, but you don't you don't care about the 100 people that were just killed in Israel by suicide attackers or people who are being funded by Hamas literally to go and to sacrifice themselves or get paid if they you know get incarcerated. So again, I am here to bring the context that is missing from everything to remind people that this is not, oh, the Israeli government is out here and they're just massacring everybody in this hyperbolic thing and they don't really care about you know anyone whatsoever it's it's literally that we have two different groups that have very fundamental views about their right to rule and they're using every means that they can to try to manipulate the situation in their favor with Hamas trying to bait attacks and attack people so that Israel then escalates the Israeli government thinking about ways to try to you know make things worse for people and try to turn people again through horrible means because as we know blowback is a thing and it's horrific and it creates more people who grow up to want to you know go and attack so that is why i 100 agree with you all of it needs to be brought to a quell it is just that when we ignore the other violent attacks because it's not uh good enough for it to bleed and lead on a news page doesn't mean that it's not happening so that is what i bring to the table is the stuff that people are not covering the stuff the aspects that people are not covering and the economic calamity aspects that also affect people's lives, right? Poverty kills, but people are not talking about the situation, you know, when the settlements are pulled out of Gaza, right? And they had the 3,000 uh, greenhouses and those ended up going, you know, to disarray. And the people are like, well, the Israeli government ran tanks through and, and destroyed some crops. Like, no, they, they were destroyed well before that with, with the greenhouses. Again, when you destroy the means for economic prosperity, you also end lives. And that's missing in this. We need to have prosperity for all. And you can't have a group of people that's anti-prosperity, anti-economic thinking, anti-propertarian coming in and be like, well, they're going to vote for this anti-propertarian anti group. I mean, it's really it's uh, really not a, a path toward actually having peace and prosperity. Yeah. And I mean, you, you you mentioned, you know, there have been a lot of Palestinian terror attacks. And and what I do for antiwar.com every day, I read the news coming out of Israel and Palestine and see attacks on both sides. And, and in the past couple of years, the situation in the West Bank has gotten so bad with settler attacks against Palestinians, IDF killing people. And I mean, you know, it, it's there is that slow bleeding, but that's happening on both sides as well. So, uh, you know, and this this just is there's context and we could keep going back and forth about it. I think we're probably going to I guess, we're, you know, 
we're disagreeing, but we're not like fundamentally disagreeing. I don't think, Huh? but I, I think that, you know, the, our focus, I think we should just be really focused on what's happening right now. Um, because this is going to lead to something really, really bad. I mean, even worse, there's this mass starvation happening in Gaza. People could really start dropping dead. I mean, this could be come a genocide, I think. And, uh, you know, history is just not going to look kindly on, on this moment in time. And, and, you know, it's just the American empire is doing it and the, the empire always comes home in some, in some way. And that's what we have to be cautious about and kind of worried about. And, you know, so I try, you know, I wish I didn't have to re- read and write about this all day. I've been trying to focus more on the future war with China and, and in East Asia, I was right, reading lots of books, preparing to write one of my own. And then this happened and this has just taken all my focus, but uh, yeah, I hope, you know, and it, it's sad because whenever I even talk about this issue, I never really have like a solution. Um, so that's why I think that the focus for me and is, is to call for our government to stop supporting it. And I think right now, you know, there are a lot of crazy leftist Marxist activists saying crazy things, but there's also some organized, organized groups their main demand is a ceasefire uh, in Gaza, and I think that that's something everybody should just strive for, uh, even though many Israelis protesting for a ceasefire, families of hostages. Um, you know, I just don't have the best ideas for the path to peace in this situation. Jack? Hello. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, Jack. I appreciate you. you, you, you I just like to make sure. I want yeah, to make sure we, we, I we don't really have a bunch of yeah. uh, time left, Dave. You, Dave, I have you, a solution. you t- wait you a second, to, Dave. You, a Dave, you tell me how much time do you have left, Dave? I got like five minutes. I think my wife. Yeah, I got just like a couple minutes. Okay, so so Jack, if you want to give your closing um, words of wisdom, and then mix in with it, maybe your plugs or anything for anyone listening, and then we'll go back to to Dave within the next five minutes. You got it. So I do want to present a solution. And again, I have no illusions of grandeur. I'm not the head of a military. I'm not the head of a state. I am just a guy here on the internet who uh, can read and write. So I'm just uh, analyzing things and thinking about the history and thinking about what might be possible based on other things. I think the core aspect to uh, solving this issue is to bring about economic prosperity through opening up trade. I think that that is the first step. The Israelis had that back in uh, before 2006, before they left West Bank uh, and Gaza, I think that was a mistake. I think that they should continue to have uh, economic influence and have uh, business opportunities for people over there um, because that actually builds inroads to peace. On top of that, um, I also think that uh, restitution can be on the table. I think the Israeli government should make restitution um, to those who are factually removed, uh, not just left, but factually removed. Uh, I think that a part of what could be done potentially to green light that over is, is something that can be taken in any other political context of refugees, right? People are given asylum or, or refugee status uh, over a period of years. I think that if you want to incentivize peace, uh, offering that to start with people who um, are over there in, in Gaza, who have a job already in Israel, and they have a, a significant other and a, a blood child, giving them the opportunity to come back, repatriate, and have restitution, uh, possibly um, 
in a, in a type of land grant or something else that gets them established and then giving them a uh, a waiting period for possible full citizenship during which they do not um, have, of course, the right to vote They and they have to you know not have any violent or criminal activity during that time. Um, and then uh, repatriating them, I think, is also a possibility. Um, I think there's also another alternative possibility that, again, Egypt literally had a governance over Gaza. Like it's next to Egypt. This is not weird. It's not hard. They had no problem being the governance for like 20 years, right? Egypt provided the government. So why can't that become part of Egypt again? The only reason that there's this suffering, this struggling in, in part is because other countries are also starving these people, right? It's not, oh, just Israel and Israel also brings in trucks, but other countries are literally like, yeah, we're not, we don't want you people. You don't come in, right? You know, Jordan took in some people in the beginning a little bit and then they stopped. So, you, you know, Everything that is being presented is, oh, this is all Israel's fault and not, oh, you know, the le- the losers in the Arab League of 48 and 67, like every other country, World War II, one World War II, uh, duh, you know, uh, if you lost the war, you're in charge of your, you know, reparations and having to make do just like Germany and all this other stuff. Why is it that these countries that lost both times and even did things to frustrate British and French government, you know, operations with, with just free trade, like actually just having travel, why is it that suddenly everything has changed right now suddenly that's that's no good you know oh that, that's good for everybody else but not for them it it's just bizarre again not from a uh, um an ancap perspective but from a status perspective there's a two sides of the coin being played right where it's like oh, okay boundary resetting for everybody else okay that's fine all right that's what it is but oh for you guys will you that's permanently not good right pakistan india fine Israel and, you know, Gaza West Bank. Oh, you're bad. It's just, it's really a stupid game. So again, the libertarian solution is Israel needs to become a libertarian order. They need to free the market. They need to let people be armed and buy guns like Americans can buy guns. They need to enable people to come work and give green light visas uh, for people to come and get jobs in Israel and all that good stuff. There's no short uh, end in sight for the possibilities of prosperity if libertarian property rights are respected and restitution uh, is begun, a path of, of restitution. I think that that's perfectly reasonable. Not more statism, not, hey, let's make a new government or, oh, we need to have them vote. You know, oh yeah, okay, like, why would voting be a thing, you know, if you don't want people to vote for more government nonsense? You know what I mean? It's like, voting's not the solution here. So we got to move away from that as the focus and move toward actual property rights, actual peace, actual ceasefire, actual restitution, and possibly, um, a, uh, a giving back uh, to Egypt as it once had the control uh, and uh, political uh, ownership over that region. Again, not that Egypt's great or anything like that, but it's just a question of, okay, do you want people to be able to freely move somewhere, you know, and, and go shopping, you know, over in Egypt? That's, you know, that's what we're talking about here. So. Okay. Thank you very much, Jack. Um, Dave, if you would like your closing uh, statement, please. Yeah, um, I, I would just say, you know, those are nice ideas, but just the reality of Israel adopting any kind of libertarian, you know, uh, solutions like that, uh, just unfortunately not in the realm of reality, at least any time in the near future. Um, but so I think the occupation in the West Bank needs to end, but unfortunately there's already 500,000 Israeli settlers and they're pushing more further in there. You know, that would be the ultimate Solution is to end the actual military occupation, but they, they don't want to do that. Netanyahu has been bragging about how he prevented the two-state solution and how, you know, he's been expanding settlements in Gaza. Uh, sorry, in the West Bank. Um, but anyway, I, I do have to run. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed the conversation today. I definitely like to be challenged uh, on some of this stuff. 
And yeah, and if people want to check out my work, it's antiwar.com and you can follow me on Twitter. And I also have a daily podcast called Anti-War News with Dave DeCamp. Good stuff. Jack and Dave, thank you both for your time. I appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. Thanks, man. I want to thank everyone for tuning in. Of course, we will soon have out another episode of The Kelly Patrick Show.